Can you recall the very first prayer you learned by heart? And was it perhaps the one that I learned when I was a little boy at the family dinner table? God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. I always said food, it rhymed. (laughs) There is wonderful wisdom sometimes in the simple words that children speak. And as we began to reflect on last week, as we started this series on the attributes of God, on the subject of discovering God more deeply, it is true that God is great. God is great like no other being we explored last week. No one can be said to be great in precisely the way that God is, for he is the only all-sufficient one. He is one who will never need anything that someone might provide to him from outside of himself. Everyone and everything else that we ever touch or ever discover in this life is a contingent thing, if you think about it. It has needs. It requires something to cause it or to continue it, or to comfort it. But God is like no other in this regard. God is self-existing. God is self-sustaining. God is self-satisfying. He has no needs outside of himself at all. Now I know that there are those in the world who view God as nothing but a projection of our minds. But the testimony of the scriptures and generations throughout millennia is that actually it's just the opposite. We are a projection of his mind, a creation of his imagination. In him we live and we move and we have our being, says the Apostle Paul. And what this means is that just as easily as you could let go of the thought of anything that I'm saying to you right now, I know it's tempting, just as easily as you could let your mind leave this room and travel off and fix instead on what I might have for lunch today. Will it be the salad or that greasy burger? It will be the burger, I think just as easily as you could let go of this place and this topic today, that easily, God could let go of us. He could take his mind off sustaining us. And in that instant, you and everyone around you and this world and this universe would cease to be. In Him, we live and we move and we have our being. God is great and thankfully also good. That's what I want to think about, especially with you this morning. I want to reflect with you today on the reality that the glory of God's immense greatness lies in his incomparable goodness. 
The Bible says that a man once came up to Jesus while he was on his way. And the individual, in an act of humility, ran up and knelt down, the Bible says, and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good. No one is good except God alone. Now, in saying this, Jesus was not suggesting that he wasn't good. Oh, he was and is so good, as we'll return to in a moment. Now, the reason Jesus answered this particular way was because he knew just how much the human concept of goodness needs stretching. We throw that word good around with respect to people a great deal. We throw it around, I think, barely grasping its full meaning. Some department store Santa asks little Susie, for example, were you good this year? And Susie says, oh, yes, Santa, I only kicked my brother three times this week. Or Bob comes back from being out with his buddies and his wife or his girlfriend asks, where were you? Oh, I was just out with the guys having a few beverages, he says. He kindly leaves out the fact that they were at Hooters. And that their good friend Dave, who is married, actually asked for the phone number of the waitress. And that Bob himself had actually made a pretty raw comment about the young woman's considerable assets. He politely leaves that out. He says, don't worry, honey. I was good. And he believes it. As far as he's concerned, looking but not touching is good. Or the head of a sales team skirts a scolding for failing to close out a key deal the company was counting on, and she does so by playing on the boss's vanity. I know if they'd had a chance to hear from you, Steve, we'd have gotten the deal. You, do, you, sell, you sell it like nobody else does, Steve. And as she walks out of the meeting, one of her co-workers looks at her and says slyly and Quietly, oh, you are good. You're really good. Are you getting this picture? Does this ring at all familiar? The concept of good for us is a squishy thing a lot of the time. I'm good because I could have been worse. I'm good... Because some people are worse. I'm good because I can get other, feeling, other people feeling good about me. Or thinking that I'm pretty good. This is not quite the same, however, as actually being good, is it? Even when selfishness or pride isn't the driving motivation of our activities we often settle into a somewhat limited definition of good simply because we lack experience of something that is more good still. 
Remember the time not too long ago when most people thought that the definition of a good basketball player was Magic Johnson. And then what happened? Who came along? Michael Jordan. And the concept expanded for everyone. People thought the iPhone was good till the iPhone 4 came out or the Android or whatever device you are lusting after these days. I even thought I was good <laughs> until I met Mama Maggie Gobron, the Mother Teresa of Cairo, and I got my concept blown open of what a human being could be like. But if you start fussing over Mama Maggie, she tells you pretty much the exact same thing that Jesus told the man who fawned over him in the story we read a moment ago. Why do you call me good, she says. No one's good except God alone. Again and again, this is the assertion the Bible makes. Again and again, this is the insistent message of the Scriptures that the Lord is good. Oh, He's so good for His steadfast love like no one else endures forever. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, writes the psalmist. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The whole of the scriptures, in many ways, the the message of the Bible is driving towards us, towards an encounter with the goodness of God, encouraging us to take more deeply the reality of that goodness in because his goodness is our refuge. His character is our hope. The message of the scriptures is that God alone is good in the absolute and most important sense. In fact, the Anglo-Saxon word for good comes from the word God. In its original definition, goodness meant godliness. Earlier generations understood that if you wanted to teach your kids to be good, if you wanted to encourage goodness in your co-workers, if you wanted to pursue goodness yourself, then you had to keep in your view this attribute of God. They understood that without the proper vision of God, we would always deteriorate and dilute our understanding of goodness. We would make it a matter of convenience. We would make it a matter of social fashion. We needed to keep God in our vision. And I think that if our experience of goodness in contemporary times has deteriorated at all, as sometimes you might think the daily news or your personal travels would suggest that it has, it is because we have turned our gaze away from God and we've forgotten, understandably, We've just forgotten what goodness looks like. So, what is it about him that defines goodness in a very needed way? A.W. Tozer defined it in these terms, and I share it with you this morning. 
The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind. Let me stop right there for a minute. And I need your attention back with me for a minute. It's very important. His goodness is not primarily what he does, but who he is. His goodness, says Tozer, is that in him which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. In other words, goodness is not a technique. It's a temperament with God. Okay, it's not just conduct, it's his character. He is tenderhearted and of quick sympathy, writes Tozer. His unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he's inclined to bestow blessedness. He's inclined to to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure, he enjoys the health and the hope of his people. Now, this is a lovely description of God's goodness. But if you are actually trying to teach your children or grandchildren, if you're trying to instruct your friends and neighbors and co-workers, encouraging them to believe in the goodness of God, to study it more deeply, what actual evidence would you point to in order to demonstrate that God actually is good in a way different than the way people define it. How would you do that? What would you point to? What would be the evidence? Well, let me tell you just some of what I see. Some of what moves me on this topic. Before I went to bed last night, I walked outside... And I looked up into that wonderfully warm and clear dark sky and I saw those billions of twinkling stars. Maybe some of you did as well. As beautiful as that particular view was, I have enough education to know, just barely enough, that I was looking out at a universe, at least a tiny piece of it, which should, by its characteristics, in no way make my life possible. I should not have been there even to see it. Scientists tell me that the overwhelmingly pervasive character of about 99.9 and a whole lot of other nines percent of the space that they have been able to see thus far can be summed up in four words. Darkness, lifelessness, emptiness, and unthinkable cold. 99.99% of all that stuff out there, darkness, lifelessness, emptiness, and unthinkable cold. Now, I know that sounds like Chicago in February. (laughs) But it is more so out there. 
People sometimes, I know, point to all the suffering and the struggling that happens on this earth as evidence that God is not good. And I'm going to touch a little bit on that next week. I do not mean to take anybody's pain and losses lightly. I understand why people continually, particularly in this age, agonize over how there could be a good God in light of all of the difficulties, the struggles, the pain and tragedies of life. I get this. My family has been wounded by murder and disease and broken relationships and drug addiction and mental illness and mayhem and all kinds of tragedies like you, like a lot of people. But just give me five minutes. Just give me five minutes of the light, life, learning, love, and laughter that God has still made possible on this planet Earth. Just give me five minutes of that over five million years of the darkness, lifelessness, emptiness, and unthinkable cold that is out there. And I would consider that good. I would consider that amazing grace to just have been here for five minutes. We have this stunning way as human beings, this stunning way of focusing on the missing fruit and the snakes in the grass when we are surrounded by an absolutely staggering abundance of goodness. And, and, and from what the Bible says, this has apparently been an issue since Genesis, right? I mean, this has been the human way since the very, very beginning. We see the one thing that's not there or the, the, it blows up and becomes the largest thing when there's so much more to life. And from the look of what I saw this morning, it's just not all there is. It's just this pain and difficulty and trial is just not all there is. In fact, it's only... The pain is only a tiny bit of all there is. A tiny bit. I got up this morning. I put my feet on the ground. I got out of bed. And gravity worked perfectly again. Where else is that happening in the universe, as far as we know? That people can get up and just walk around and brush their teeth and not have the stuff in their mouth, you know, splatter all over the mirror because gravity's gone crazy or it's not there. I drove over here to the church this morning. And from the look of everybody that I passed by on my way in, the miracle of cellular life was operating again. Unbelievably. I mean, it's remarkable. The variety. I mean, it could all be gray. Everything else, most everything else out there is gray, dark. The colors, the variety, the fecundity of it all. It's gloriously good, I thought to myself again. And the sun, <laughs> it was still exactly the right distance away from where I live to keep me from frying or freezing. 
I could address whatever my problem was by putting on a sweater or taking it off. And this was very, very good, I thought. Throughout this morning, I've been able to enjoy all kinds of what theologians call common graces as well. The simple gifts that just come. They're freebies for being a human being. I could taste coffee. I could smell perfume. I could hear music. I I could enjoy beauty. I could feel the touch of warm hands. And just think what opportunities to love and laugh and learn and live and give to other people who need more of these things are out there for you and me just this afternoon ahead. Just in five minutes of this afternoon. How good is that? How good is this life that God has made? And if we ache and we hurt over the pains of it, it's simply only because of the contrast with the great goodness that is life. The Bible says that after creating life on this planet, God saw all that he had made and it was what? Yeah, it was very good. And you know, I agree. Do you agree that this life is, on the whole, very, very good? I I have been allowed to enjoy for even the past five minutes such grace in view of what is out there. And that, to me, seems evidence that he is good. This gift of his is good. Because he is. I am also moved by what the Bible shows me of God's goodness in the representative stories of the Old Testament. I say representative because the stories we read in this Bible, they're our stories. I mean, the names, change the names, the places. These are our issues, our experiences the Bible describes. And the Bible is so immensely valuable because it, put word, it puts words around these common experiences. It's why it is the best-selling book of all time. It's why it's still around after all of these years. It tells the story of life as it is. And, and I love the stories of the Bible. The psalmist says, the Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. You may have thought that the tender mercies were invented by a country singer. No, it's the Bible that tells us this. And it records how true that is in story after story after story. You know, I see God's tender mercy in the way he treated Adam and Eve. I mean, amazing. I don't know what you would have done had you created a flawless environment Entrusted everything to people that you deeply loved and had them wreck it, ruin it, break your heart. And yet God does not destroy them. God does not take life away from them. God actually, the Bible says, does what? He clothes them. <laughs> he realizes they're gonna, they've made choices. They're going to take them out into a little closer to the great cold that's way out there. And he puts animal skins on them and he watches over them. And then I see God's goodness. And even in the story that makes people blanch at the Bible, the story of Noah, how God spares the family of Noah. Many people say, how could a good God ever send a calamity like that flood? It's just because we don't see the gap between his holiness and the wickedness 
that had arisen upon the earth at that time. And yet God does not say, I'm done with the human race. He starts it again because he is so good. The goodness of God is evident in his calling of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham had a good life there, a wealthy life there. And God called him from that place that was comfortable and known Abraham thought that he'd experienced all of the influence he ever would. He didn't have a clue what God could do through him if he opened himself up to him. So Abraham went on a journey, and he became the nation of Israel. He became the longest-running nation in the world. I think of how God led his people and preserved them through the years, how he guided the Hebrew people through famine and pestilence and war. I see him delivering them from slavery in Egypt and giving them this magnificent law that would become the basis for the moral code and law system of countless nations, ours included. I behold the goodness of God in the way he fed the Jewish people as they wandered in the wilderness, even though they complained like junior high kids in the back seat the whole time. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I'm hungry. Why are you serving that? I see the goodness of God in the way that he guided them into the promised land at just the right time and established a home there for them. I see the goodness of God as he raises up judges and priests and kings to lead his people Israel. I see God's goodness all throughout the voices of the prophets. As his spirit speaks his heart to people warning them about the hazards and the spiritual dangers that they could get entangled with, challenging them to remember the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, because God is good towards all. His tender mercies over all his works. And even though they rejected him time and time again, Israel, Even through the exiles his people endured as the price of that wandering and waywardness, God never gave up on them. Show me one being who's ever been that faithful, who's ever so relentlessly pursued a people as the God of Israel pursues his children, calling them, calling them, calling them home. Who is good like God? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Because he's God in the flesh. If I never had the evidence of creation, if I'd never had the experience of common grace, if I'd never had the benefit of the Old Testament stories and the history of Israel to instruct me, if I'd never had any of these other clues, the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth would be enough to show me the character of God. Philip Yancey, wonderful author, once wrote these words. I must admit that Jesus has revised in flesh 
many of my harsh and unpalatable notions about God. I must admit that. He has revised in the flesh many of those ideas I held about God. Why am I a Christian? I sometimes ask myself that question, says Yancey. And to be perfectly honest, the reasons reduce to two. One, lack of good alternatives. And two, Jesus. Jesus. Brilliant, untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, paradoxically humble, so very good, Jesus stands up to scrutiny. He is who I want my God to be. Wanting and reality are not always identical, however. So here's the question. Could, could God really be like Jesus? When we see Jesus embracing lepers that no one would go 10 feet near, when we see Jesus dining with outcasts that all the polite and the popular people avoided like the plague, when we see Jesus stooping to wash the stinking feet of people that were about to abandon him in his greatest hour and betray him to his enemies, what is this telling us about God? When Jesus tells us about a shepherd who goes out in the middle of the night to find one lost lamb, risks it all, through the brush and the thicket and facing the danger of the wolves to find just one lost lamb, even though he's got 99 perfectly good ones back here at home. When Jesus describes a father who has been terribly disrespected, violated, humiliated, actually stolen from by one of his own children, still stands there, scanning the horizon day after day, desperately longing for that prodigal child to come home. What's the message Jesus is trying to give us by these stories? When Jesus is surrounded by a clamoring crowd and not only notices, but actually stops to give his full attention to one little man in a tree at a moment of spiritual readiness, to one woman back behind him who touches the hem of his garment, hoping against hope for a gracious cure. And Jesus not only sees them, feels them, but turns and cares for them and gives his self to them. When Jesus declares his utmost compassion for prisoners, for the hungry, for the cold and the sick, and doesn't just use words, but goes to meet needs, what is the message there? Above all else, when Jesus voluntarily allows his body to be beaten, when he submits himself to be flayed by a cat of nine tails almost to pieces, when he lies down voluntarily upon a cross 
and allows his body to be ravaged for the sake of people who've turned their backs on him. When he sees Mary and John, his only supporters there at the foot of the cross, looking up, trying to comfort him, and instead he looks down at them and comforts them. Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. You don't have to be alone comforting them. When he promises paradise to a dying thief, desperately, ridiculously reaching out for some kind of last-minute grace he did not deserve. And when with his final aching breaths, Jesus actually prays not for the destruction, but for the complete forgiveness of the people who'd put him on a cross to die when his only crime was loving and telling the truth. What is this telling us about God? You know the answer, I think. There are only two possible reasons why someone so sufficient in himself That he needs nothing. Only two possible reasons why someone like that would desire to say and to teach and to do and to suffer the things he did. Either he's altogether crazy, he's lost his divine marbles, or else he is very, 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 very good. And since he is, since he is that good, what do you need to ask for his help in? Right now. He cares about you. What is it you need to ask him for grace in? Right now. Where do you, how do you need to be more like him? In your character or your relationships? Why, why are you so afraid of the future, of that event, of that issue you know about? Why are you so afraid of it? When he is going to walk with you through it without fail. Or what is stopping you from giving your life, opening your heart, Beginning your intentional journey with him who is good this day. Please pray with me. And now, O oh God, 
Continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to work within us, awakening us to that need or that opportunity or that life for which you, your goodness, is our hope. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.